Philippians chapter 1. Our passage this morning runs from verse 27 of chapter 1 to the end of verse 4 of chapter 2. But perhaps we could pick up our reading in the middle of verse 18 of chapter 1, page 1178. Yes, writes Paul, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Amen, and may God bless to us that reading from his word. Shall we come before the Lord in prayer? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Our prayer this morning is that your word would do its work in each one of us for your glory. Amen. In 
It's not easy being separated from friends and loved ones. Perhaps your daughter and her family live abroad. You hear from them from time to time, but not as often as you'd like. You'd love to receive regular updates and really know how they were doing. You want to be part of their lives and share your life with them in a deep and meaningful way. Over the past three weeks, we've seen how the Apostle Paul knew the strain of being separated from people he loved, people he cared for. He had founded the church in Philippi, and the Christians there were often in his thoughts. He received news of them from time to time, In fact, recently a man called Epaphroditus had come from Philippi to Rome with a gift for Paul from the Philippian church. But Paul wanted more. He wanted to see the Philippian Christians and he wanted to encourage them in their faith. That was why he prayed regularly for them. He tells us in verses 3 and 4, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And it was because he cared for the Philippians that he wrote this letter. There were a couple of things, at least a couple of things, that made writing this letter particularly pressing. For one thing, Paul was a prisoner in Rome. Then, as now, there was a stigma attached to being in prison. Paul was concerned that the Christians in Philippi might struggle to understand why God could possibly allow his apostle to end up in jail. He therefore assures them that despite appearances, God really is at work. Look at what he says in verse 12 of chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. What Paul is saying is that God is using his situation, even as a prisoner, to advance the gospel. The elite soldiers who serve the Roman emperor himself have got to know that Paul is in prison because he's a Christian. And no doubt this has made some of them ask what this newfangled Christianity is all about. Not only that, During Paul's detention, Christians in Rome have stepped up to the plate and begun to proclaim the gospel with newfound zeal and confidence. Paul wants the Christians in Philippi to know there's no reason to lose heart because he's in prison. But Paul has another reason for writing this letter. It's possible... He may remain in prison indefinitely or even be condemned to death. He hopes he'll be released and be able to visit Philippi again, but he can't be sure. 
at a personal level, he's unfazed by this. As we saw last week, he says in verse 21, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's in a win-win situation. If his life is spared, he'll use his time to serve Christ wholeheartedly. But if he's executed, death will simply usher him into the nearer presence of his Saviour, where he can serve him even better and love him more. Paul's concern is how the Philippians will fare in his absence. And so he says in the opening verse of this morning's passage, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Whether or not they see Paul again, there are things that Philippian Christians need to be aware of. Not least because they are beginning to, beginning to face sustained opposition to the gospel. Not only that, there are signs that the unity of the church is coming under strain. I'd like to look with you this morning at this passage under three headings. First of all, there's a basic obligation. A basic obligation. Look with me please at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The verb Paul uses here is an interesting one. The Greek word for citizen is polites, which gives us our English word politics. It's the related verb polituomai that Paul uses. It's basic, its root meaning is to live as a free citizen. Paul is actually making a very subtle point. It's so subtle that it's probably lost on all of us. But it wouldn't have been lost on the Philippians and it would have rather appealed to them. You see, Philippi was a city in the province of Macedonia. But it had a special status. It had the status of a Roman colony. It was treated as an outpost of the imperial city itself. That meant its citizens were Roman citizens. They might never have set foot in Rome, but they were Roman citizens with all the status and rights of citizens of Rome. Paul is making the point that just as the citizens of Philippi were also citizens of Rome, so the Christians in Philippi had dual status spiritually speaking. They had a dual passport. They were citizens not only of this world, but also of the world to come. Paul makes the same point more explicitly in chapter 3, verse 20, where he writes, Our citizenship is in heaven. 
So the basic obligation Paul requires of the Philippian Christians is to live in a way that recognises and reflects their status as citizens of heaven. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. They're to remember who they are and to behave accordingly. That's something that all of us who call ourselves Christians need to take on board. There's conduct that is worthy of the gospel we profess and by implication conduct that is not worthy of the gospel. There's behaviour that's appropriate for a Christian and behaviour that's inappropriate. The gospel isn't just about what we believe. It should also affect how we behave. By that I don't mean that what we do earns God's favour. Our standing with God rests wholly on what the Lord Jesus has done for us in his life, death and resurrection. But if we are Christians, God's Holy Spirit lives within us and is in the business of helping us become more like Jesus. And we should want to live in a way that pleases our Saviour. Someone has said that theology is grace and ethics is gratitude. In other words, only on the basis of his free, unmerited favour are we accepted by God. But by living in accordance with his will, we show our gratitude for all that he has done for us. I don't know how often this happens nowadays. It used to happen a lot. A teenager would be going out with his or her friends for the evening. And as they were going out the door, Dad would say, Now remember whose son, whose daughter you are. He didn't have to spell out what he meant. The teenager knew perfectly well. They'd been brought up to behave in a certain way. If they kicked over the traces when they were out with their friends, they'd be letting down not just themselves, but their families as well. Paul is saying something similar to the Philippian Christians. He's saying, remember whose children you are. Remember your citizens of heaven. Behave in a way that's worthy of the gospel. That's the basic obligation. But Paul has something particular in mind. That brings me to my second point, a specific focus. We've looked at the basic obligation, now we look at the specific focus. Look with me at what Paul says in the second half of verse 27. Then, in other words, if you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. That's Paul's specific focus. He wants the Philippians to stand firm in the face of opposition 
and to contend for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is under attack in Philippi. Paul doesn't spell out exactly where the opposition is coming from. The fact he refers to those who oppose you and says in verse 28 that they will be destroyed suggests that there are people outside the church who for whatever reason hate the gospel and what it stands for and have it in for Christians. The gospel is always under attack. It's not a popular message. That's true not least at a personal level. We're all by nature in rebellion against God, however respectable we may appear on the outside. We prefer to go our own way rather than God's. We don't want to hear that we're sinners. The idea that God's Son died on the cross for our sins, well, that's offensive, that offends us. Surely all we need to do is dust ourselves down and we'll be good enough for God. That's how we all see things by nature. Unless and until God opens our eyes to see our need. And there may well be someone here today who sees things that way. You can't understand the gospel and what little you know about it you don't like. You need to hang on to the gospel and pray that God will open your eyes to understand what the gospel's about. Given our personal antagonism to the gospel, it's no surprise that the structures of society around us largely exclude God. In Scotland at present, we see determined efforts being made to drive the last vestiges of Christianity from the public sphere. And behind all the opposition to the gospel, is the devil who goes about masterminding the assault on God and his purposes. Against that background, what does Paul want the Philippians to do? He wants them to stand firm in the face of opposition and not be afraid. They're not to give ground to their opponents. They're to contend for the truth of the gospel. They're to proclaim and defend it. Citizens of heaven should do no less. It's part of what's involved in living in a manner worthy of the gospel. But there's something else. Paul tells the Philippians not only what they're to do, but how they're to do it. They are to stand firm in one spirit. They are to contend for the faith of the gospel as one man. They're to maintain unity in the church. That too is part of what's involved in living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Divisions were beginning to surface in the Philippian church. Paul addresses these further in the opening verses of chapter 2. He says in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It seems that personalities were becoming a problem in the church in Philippi. Individual Christians were pushing their own agenda, regardless of how it affected the fellowship as a whole. They were looking out for themselves, 
and had no concern for others. They'd lost sight of the big picture. As a result, this unity had crept in. Paul explains how unity can be restored. They need to practice humility by consciously deferring to one another and subordinating their own interests to those of others. Paul makes the point that a united church is needed to confront opposition to the gospel. The unity of a church is a powerful witness to a watching world. After all, every church is made up of a disparate group of people and only the supernatural power of the gospel can hold them all together. They do have an underlying unity. Paul highlights several things that binds Christians together. In chapter 2 verse 1 he speaks of our being united with Christ. All Christians are united with Christ and so are united with one another. We all know the comfort of Christ's love, having all been saved by his death on the cross. We are also united in the Holy Spirit. That's probably what Paul is alluding to in verse 27 of chapter 1 when he speaks about standing firm in one spirit. And in chapter 2 verse 1 he refers to fellowship with the Spirit. The one Spirit, the one Holy Spirit indwells all believers. And then there's our common commitment to the truth of the gospel. All these things give a church an underlying unity. But that underlying unity must be expressed in practice. That underlying unity which is based on a shared commitment to the gospel and a shared experience of its power must be reflected in the way we live and interact with one another. When we fall out with one another, that casts doubt on the unifying power of the gospel. And the energy that we consume in squabbling with one another is energy that could more profitably be expended in contending for the gospel. Unity, in Paul's eyes, is not an optional extra. It's part of his specific focus as he urges the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. These things have obvious resonance for us as a church in our particular circumstances. We want to contend for the faith of the gospel, but may we do so together in unity. We want to maintain our unity as we contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. We want the church to stand firm in one spirit. We all need to give these things our careful consideration. They are for us in these weeks and months a very specific focus. A basic obligation, a specific focus 
Finally, in these verses, we have a twofold encouragement. A twofold encouragement. Look with me at what Paul says in verses 29 and 30. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul isn't speaking about suffering in general, but the kind of suffering which Christians face because they are Christians. Nor is he endorsing a kind of martyr complex. He's not saying that Christians should go out of their way to bring suffering upon themselves. He's saying that suffering for their faith is a normal part of Christian experience. Just as the gospel meets with opposition, so Christians face suffering on occasion on account of their commitment to it. It's inevitable to some degree or other. It's part of what's involved in living as a Christian in a manner worthy of the gospel. As Paul says elsewhere, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No cross, no crown. Viewed from that perspective, far from invalidating faith, suffering authenticates it. That's an interesting way of looking at things, isn't it? We naturally see suffering of any kind as bad. And let's be honest, suffering is never easy to cope with. But Paul encourages us to look on any suffering that comes our way because we're Christians as evidence that we are members of God's family living a normal Christian life. It is to that extent a badge of honour. That's an encouragement for the Philippian Christians. And there's something else. Because he knew the Philippian Christians had put their trust in Christ and were leading an authentic Christian life as they faced opposition for their commitment to the gospel, Paul was convinced that they would be fully and finally saved. You've probably heard people speak about the three tenses of salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Well, Paul assures the Philippian Christians that while the enemies of the gospel will be destroyed, you will be saved, and that by God. That's what he says in verse 28. The gospel will prevail. God will vindicate his people. Christians are on the victory side. When I was young, there was a chorus we used to sing. On the victory side, on the victory side, no foe can harm me, no fear alarm me. On the victory side, with Christ within, the fight we'll win. On the victory side. That was another encouragement for the Philippians. They were facing a tough time. But victory was assured. A basic obligation 
a specific focus, a twofold encouragement. This is a challenging passage for all of us. We need to face up to the basic obligation of conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Can I ask you, what will that mean for you in practical terms this week? What will that mean you do that you haven't been doing recently? What will you not do that's unworthy of the gospel? Will you stand firm with your fellow Christians in contending for the faith of the gospel? And will you seek to maintain the unity of the fellowship? Let's be encouraged that if we are Christians, we are on the victory side. Shall we pray? Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help each one of us work out what that means for us. And help us to contend for the faith of the gospel and maintain the unity of our fellowship. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.